1979, author Octavia Butler published a novel which would become a foundational text in our understanding of slavery. Kindred tells the story of Dana, an African-American writer from California who travels back uncontrollably to early 1800s Maryland to protect her ancestors and ensure her own existence. In this episode, we are going to take a closer look at Kindred, both the book and its recent 2023 TV adaptation, as we answer the question, what does Kindred tell us about plantation life? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining us from the faculty is Dr. Rebecca Fraser, a historian of 19th century America with a particular interest in the history of African Americans, especially relating to their resistance against slavery and the enslaved experience. Welcome back, Rebecca. Hello, thank you for having me again. Um, And it is a pleasure to um, finally talk about a novel relating to slavery. I'm really excited about this particular episode. Yeah, well, you inspired us to to do this uh, this podcast because I remember covering it when you taught me about slavery. So, uh, and it's always it's always stuck in my mind. But also joining us today is Dr. Hilary Emmett, an associate professor in American Studies at the University of East Anglia. She researches the afterlives of enslavement in literature and visual culture, with a particular interest in the transnational reach of the late great Nobel Prize winner Toni Morrison. Hello, Hilary. Hello, Liam, and hi, Becky. Hey. It's great to have you both uh, joining me for this discussion. Uh, Obviously, Kindred is a text that anyone who studies slavery is probably familiar with. Anyone who hasn't studied slavery has probably heard of, if not seen, the TV series. So let's just first wrap some context around this episode. I want to discuss the success of Kindred, both the book and the TV series, its reception and the differences between the two in terms of how it portrayed Dana's story who wants to kick off what were your thoughts I'll let the specialist in African-American literature um <laughs> kick off if that's oh, all gosh. right Mary. I was banking on Becky as the pod- person with the podcast experience to kick off so obviously I've been thinking a lot about this question uh since we we kind of touted the idea of of this podcast and trying to think about this in two ways sort of once I guess first and foremost about what is successful about this adaptation. So in a way, what yes, what I liked about it, um, what I thought could have been differently, but also I guess to think about the process of adaptation itself and what we want adaptation to do. So I guess the thing, as, as Becky sort of said, you know, I, I think about literature, um, that is my field. So the thing I loved is that Dana wants to write for soaps, right? And when Kevin kind of takes it a task about that and says, well, you know, who even watches those? I don't even know what they are. She's like, yeah, women, you know, this is, this is a, a medium that that's kind of written for women. Um, and it's clearly important to her to, to write the kinds of scripts that, that women want to see. So it got me thinking, I really felt that set up over the course of the, uh, the whole adaptation over this, the series. What does it mean to be a woman watching Kindred? And that very obviously, 
I, I could only speak from my own perspective as a, as a white woman, a white Australian woman with my own implication in histories of, of settler colonialism and, and unfree labour that went along with that. But yeah, what does it mean to be, to be a woman from different subject positions watching uh, this series? So one of the things that I, I looked out for quite carefully were these moments of implication Right, you know, how are, are white women being being represented? Um, and so, I thought a lot about Margaret Whalen. Um, I thought a lot about Penny, uh, Kevin's sister, um, and of course the objectionable white neighbour. <laughs> and I mean, we can kind of circle back to this, but I found myself sort of smugly thinking, "Oh well, I'm nothing like Margaret Whalen, and I'm nothing like you know the, the terrible neighbour." But that character of Penny, I think, does interesting things to, to kind of, you know, to, to white women and, and white viewership. And that's not to centre white women. Again, it's just to kind of ask what I feel like we're being asked by the, the story to think about our own implication and, and women particularly to think about what it is that, that we view and what is it that we want out of viewing. And I do. I feel like I'm, I'm really focusing on the white characters here and I don't mean to be doing that and maybe we can come back and, and unpack that. Um, but I guess what I then felt ambivalent about was the sympathy that I felt, these moments of sympathy that, that I think bubble up, that I felt the text, the, the show was trying to make us feel for Margaret at times and I felt, and I had to, you know, I'm still kind of interrogating my own response to that. Is it that I felt sympathetic and now I, f- I feel sort of guilty and implicated that I felt sympathetic for her or am I actually kind of cross with the show itself that's maybe something to think about and yeah some kind of some of the the representation of Kevin took a bit of getting used to because I felt like that was actually one of the biggest departures from won't say the biggest but one of the biggest departures from the book was that that Kevin I think the Kevin of 2016 is very different to the to the Kevin of, of 1976 and that's something to talk about in that, yeah, the kind of the the book, Kevin is more inclined to take that deep dive into history, and the the show Kevin is is sort of deeply oblivious. And I'm wondering if that's a difference between that 2016 context and the and the 1976 context, and something that Jacobs Jenkins wants us to think about. But I feel like I've gone on enough, so I'm going to throw it back to Becky. Yeah, thanks, Hilary. So uh, I've you know sort of thinking about you know sort of responsibility and, and implication um and i think the showrunner or you know sort of the uh, creator of the show uh um brandon jacobs jenkins kind of takes a risk here right it's not a complete uh, replay of octavia butler's kindred he takes risks and i think one of those risks and i've read several interviews with him and he's, you know, a playwright. He's also a professor of, of African American history, um, and um, he was really eager not to sensationalise violence um, on the screen, which I think he did brilliantly. I mean, it, it really was well achieved there, um, and much of it was left to our imagination as viewers. But we still got the um, experience of Dana. We still got, you know, sort of the utter kind of a dislocation of her what was happening right but also i agree with um hillary that you know sort of kevin um kevin didn't have long enough to you know sort of develop into a fully formed character i didn't feel and because the season ends um and there's no more yet he may go on a journey himself and we see him right at the end so this is a bit of a spoiler here kevin um it ends and um, so kevin is left in the past um in um sort of early maryland uh, um 
plantation on the Wayland plantation without Dana. So Dana's gone home. She's been transported back to uh, California um, without um, Kevin. And we see Kevin um, astride a horse, I think, acting um, in a very kind of authoritative way. Um, we're not really sure whether he's a overseer or an, in, uh, an enslaver himself, whether he's he's bought a, a, an enslaved person. But I think he's um, doing this uh, to protect possibly Alice, um, who is, you know, sort of uh, um, the um, enslaved woman that will subsequently uh, um, mother Hagar, who is um, uh, Dana's great, 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 great grandmother. Um, but I also think I want to add and maybe want to talk about a little bit more as the show progresses. Barry, Barry Jacobs Jenkins suggested in several of the interviews that actually the point he was trying to make um, was about, you know, sort of we're all related to enslaved peoples, right? So the fact that, you know, sort of this history is your history, it's my history, it's um, because um, of the um, sexual exploitation that took place the gratuitous rape of enslaved um, women um, that um, birthed by racial children, um, so enslaved um, mothers and um, um, white fathers, um, usually the enslaver or an enslaver's family member, a male family member. And so, and uh, and I think, you know, so that was the point I thought, ah, right, okay. So, you know, it's about, you know, sort of descendancy and and the kind of the links and the heritage there. So, you know, sort of, I, I think, you know, he takes risks. Um, and certainly I was not impressed with the fact that Dana and Kevin take an iPod uh, with them uh, on their journeys and it never runs out of uh, um, power. I, I'm just, you know, sort of, they spend months in this place. Um, so there are kind of poetic license, but I do think he took risks and I do think he did it genuinely, genuinely well. I'm quite sad that there are, uh, there's, there's not another series yet. I wonder if the iPod thing is supposed to be a nod to the fact that it's, it's still running on 2016 time and therefore because only a few hours have passed maybe that's why I never ran out of charge possibly um, possibly but um, um I actually couldn't get past the first episode of the tv show and I tried I, I honestly tried but I just narratively it, it it lost me I was too I was too invested in the book um mm -hmm. I loved the book too much and I uh, you're right he took a risk with the adaptation and that's probably going to speak to a lot of people but it, it lost me I'm not too sure why they had to set it in 2016 versus 1976. I there's, think, a, there's a um, lot of things. I mean, um, Jacob Jenkins' explanation there, um, and this was most interesting when I read the interviews, was that it was the the kind of this moment. Um, so um, Obama had done two terms, right? It was this post-racial, supposedly post-racial America. Um, and it was the last moment, really. Uh, we could really believe possibly. Um, I didn't believe it was post-racial in America, um, but some people could believe that it was post-racial America, right? So 2016 is a really significant date, yeah, um, or, or year, um, where things began to shift quite dramatically after this date. And why some viewers may feel uncomfortable with that if they've read the book. I mean, I think that, I mean, it comes back to what we think adaptation is right so just to speak to becky's point there about 2016 i mean it's a moment of complacency right mm -hmm. and if you think about so one of the reasons that octavia butler gave for writing the book in the first place 
is that she felt there was a misunderstanding of you know of the african-american past right of 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 the past of enslavement um and she wrote it in response to someone that she'd overheard basically saying that you know that he'd felt there wasn't enough resistance right that that people that his parents and ancestors hadn't pushed back hard enough and she wanted to redress that kind of ignorance and I and I think complacency isn't quite the same thing as what Butler saw as a you know as a kind of ignorance willful or otherwise but I feel like again Jacobs Jenkins is taking up that moment and saying okay this is a critical moment and that historical fiction is always as much about the present as it is about the past that it's fictionalizing mm-hmm. so yeah so just just to really endorse Becky's point there that I think that 2016 is such a such a key moment um and I think we can move from there outwards to say what does adaptation do is it supposed to be faithful is it supposed to be a critical reading of the source material and if so what critical reading is is Jacobs Jenkins offering for us here and taking a cue from the the adaptation that he's done that I'm most familiar with apart from this is his adaptation of uh, the Octoroon, which was a 19th century play by Dion Busio, um, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, which he adapted as an Octoroon and nested kind of a series of, of plays within plays in that. And what becomes very clear in that adaptation, and I, I don't want to spoil it for people who might get to see it on stage because it's, it's phenomenal, it's incredibly confronting, is that there is a moment in which the audience, and very particularly the wide audience, is shown to be implicated in the terrible history that they're watching. That they've, you know, they've been laughing at the melodrama. They've been, you know, thoroughly enjoying this deeply racist 19th century drama on stage. So, so again, I think that kind of brings us back to, you know, in what ways is this is this 2016 world implicated in in the past? Um, to mm. to what extent did that moment really signify that we are still living with that unfinished business? Okay, you've I, fine. You've you've sold me on that. I, I will accept <laughs> that. Um, I, I'd like to pick up on something that you mentioned, Becky, which is the fact that the the TV series uh, deliberately strayed away from from the violence, uh, from the 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 the, 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 sort of the gory on screen details, mm-hmm. and I think that's quite a bold choice because the book I think is a, quite direct in its depiction of the of the violence and um, particularly of of, of when Dana was being whipped by Tom Whalen, mm-hmm. that was that was described in, in in quite uncomfortable detail. And other recent films, you know, like Twelve Years a Slave, for instance, uh, as a classic example, yeah. that that was very head on. So let's talk about Kindred in terms of how it is actually representing plantation life here, um, both the book and the TV series. What is it shying away from? You know, is the should it have been more violent in, in in the TV series? Would that have been a more accurate depiction? Well, it's it's difficult because it's quite sensationalised, isn't it? Um, violence, particularly around you know sort of uh, films and um, TV in relation to slavery. And I think Twelve Years a Slave actually, Steve McQueen got a little bit of you know sort of flack for that that I mean I was weeping in the cinema right mm-hmm. um and but then the Underground Railroad the, the TV adaptation of 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 uh, the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead was I mean like that I binge watched it um for a um a piece I was writing in the conversation and oh my goodness 
that was brutal and it absolutely brutal you know sort of um scenes of you know sort of um enslaved men being roasted over fires and it was just but there was a purpose for that and then other episodes were very quiet i mean very very quiet and i think we 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 need to understand that actually enslaved experiences and enslaved lives were complex right there's no one story fits all i was thinking about maryland as a um plantation um society and um and to be honest if anybody's going to know maryland it's through baltimore right um rather than you know sort of uh, the various counties and and such like um and uh, um the history of maryland is um interesting in the sense that it was tobacco farming much like virginia during um uh, slavery um and then of course um that kind of farming exhausts the soil right so there were very few like palatial slaveholding mansions in places like maryland and the idea of this whole kind of gone with the wind massive plantation houses and you know sort of a whole kind of horde of enslaved peoples that are working the land um is by 1860 i was doing some research earlier and which is just before the start of the civil war non-slaveholders accounted for 76.1 percent of the population in the united states right one to nine enslaved peoples um were owned by 17.2 percent um so one to nine is the majority of you know enslaved peoples that many people had like the most people had so that is not to say however that you know sort of slavery wasn't a massive expansive business and the most important thing i think we have to remember is maryland was an exporting slave state it basically um once the um transatlantic um uh, slave trade uh, across um uh, across the Atlantic to Africa um, was um, was made illegal in 1808. Um, they developed on the North American mainland uh, something known as the um, domestic slave trade or the interregional trade. Um, and there were certain upper uh, there were certain slave states in the Upper South, um, so places like Maryland, who sold in massive numbers enslaved peoples to the the sort of Southwest um, to you know sort of places like Mississippi and Louisiana and um even you know sort of south carolina to a certain extent so um so i think um we can think about famous you know enslaved peoples that that came from maryland so harriet tubman for instance who escaped slavery um and there's also a film made about her frederick douglas you know we're talking about douglas um a couple of weeks ago so both douglas and tubman have very very different experiences of slavery and and tubman chooses to escape from the um, uh, plantation after it's revealed that she's next on the list to be sold, right? So I think, you know, sort of, um, there's nothing wrong with portraying um, uh, um, Maryland and the um, Wayland plantation as, you know, a working plantation, as quite a, you know, sort of huge um, plantation. There were plantations in Maryland that were uh, quite sizable, but I think there's a kind of image or mythology around um southern antebellum slavery whereby you know sort of it was all these like massive um mansion houses um with acres and acres and acres of arable um land and and such like and this just really wasn't the case these were mostly small farmers who hired enslaved peoples in addition to the two or three or four that they owned so there is a kind of a little bit of a um 
a, a disconnect, I think, between how we remember slavery and what we're fed into the public imagination and actually, you know, sort of what the reality was. I wonder, though, you know, obviously Kindred is is a work of fiction. So there is an element of dramatisation there. There has to be an element of of sensationalism to, to hook the reader or, or the viewer. And we also have to remember that Kindred is a first person narrative it's mm-hmm. it's Dana's story so you know th- thinking about about that about the narratively um and as you know as a, as a as a text Hillary I wonder if you could speak on sort of Kindred as a piece of work that's not necessarily depicting the truth so much as depicting a truth yeah look I think that's a really key point in part because I think in my my reading of Butler and, and again I think in our reading of this television program as well we can be guided by um by the wonderful Toni Morrison and something that she said when asked about the writing of Beloved and I don't know I'm sure Becky your eagle eye picked this up um, but the book that Kevin gets from his sister's study when he goes in to get the gun and he pretends he's getting a book for Dana is Beloved and again I'm still kind of unpacking that in my mind is it because that would give him kind of plausible deniability right you know like oh it's such an important book you know but also kind of dude what makes you think that you know this very you know (laughs) confident compelling young woman that you've just met hasn't bloody already read beloved right you know so um so I just I thought that was really interesting moment but I think that again that's Jacobs Jenkins is signaling to us to to not forget that Kindred is part of this tradition of um, African-American women writing about enslavement. Beloved is very much about the past keeping hold of the present, right, you know, so and that Setha's whole life is spent keeping the past, past at bay, right, trying to beat back that past that threatens to overwhelm her present. And, um, and I could talk about Beloved, as I think you both know, for about four hours. But I think what to pick up here is that Morrison, when asked about that novel, explained that she doesn't, as a novelist, she didn't. She doesn't think about the difference between fact and fiction, but she thinks about the relationship between fiction and truth. And she says that fact is opposed to fiction, but truth is not. And she's she considers it her single gravest responsibility not to lie. So I guess one of the things I've been thinking about is what truth did Butler see herself as exploring through this fiction? And again, what truth? I mean, I I really deeply believe that Jacob Jenkins is you know is super informed by Morrison um, and her thinking and writing around this what truth did he want to elicit in his rendering of of Butler's novel and one thing I've been wondering about because I very much take Becky's point that this plantation isn't necessarily an accurate representation of what most um, life was like for the enslaved and enslavers alike But I also found myself asking throughout the series, we never know what this plantation produces, right? Like, like the, the Tom Whalen character, like he's very pleased with himself for having blackmailed his former brother-in-law or the, I know the the husband of his former sister-in-law into giving up his land. And he's like, Oh, and my yield is now twofold or whatever it is he says, but we don't, we don't know what it is. Mm. Right. And, And we don't see a lot of that, actual labor so I did wonder if this is sort of deliberately being presented as the kind of every plantation yeah right? and, that, and that we're we're not being given this kind of rich historical texture I think that Butler gave us that was so important for Butler precisely because 
we, like Dana and Kevin, are being pulled into that world and there needed to be enough perhaps left unsaid for us to project, I don't know, ourselves into it. So that was kind of, yeah, that's one of the ways I've been trying to think through this strangely inaccurate and yet deeply, again, sort of detailed representation of of plantation life, I guess. But I also think um, as a historian of um, African-American experiences and particularly um, slavery, that historians are so confined by the archive, right? We can't make up what's not there, right? So, you know, sort of, and even if um, uh, Stephanie Camp in her brilliant um, Closer to Freedom um, suggests that we might employ the historical imagination, so, you know, sort of um, uh, take what we, you know, is there in the sources, whether it's in shards or, you know, linear feet or and, and then, you know, employ what else we know about slavery and the conditions of um, particular individuals um, enslaved in that system. But she's not making it up, you know, so there are limits. Um, Marissa um, Fuentes, her brilliant, brilliant um, work, suggests kind of um, uh, reading with the grain. Yeah, so thinking about, you know, sort of what's there and what can we make of it, particularly around, you know, sort of enslaved experiences for women in um, Barbados. But we cannot make up history, right, as historians, I mean, as respectable historians. So, and I think that's the, the wonder of um, books like Octavia Butler's um, Kindred and um, Toni Morrison's Beloved, that actually it begins to put that that kind of, you know, sort of moving from historical imagination to the kind of, you know, sort of subjectivity that actually we can never know what enslaved women's experiences were like. That Toni Morrison and Octavia Butler begin to think of these things in much they're given kind of poetic license, but also they also give us that kind of subjective element that historians cannot do, right? Um, so I do think, you know, sort of, it's so much, I mean, we work in American studies, right? So I'm at liberty to <laughs> use novels on my module and think about, you know, sort of the importance of, you know, what this suggests. But as historians, and I am a historian, we can't get to that subjective experience in the way that black female novelists writing particularly from sort of the the seventies can and do it's interesting yeah i don't want to cut liam off there but um but yeah absolutely and again this this is something that morrison herself speaks about um in terms of what she found in the archive and what she sought to kind of flesh out in the archive um and we'll say you know it's a shame we don't have we had hoped to have one of our recently graduated um postgraduate research students with us who's just written a wonderful thesis in which she talks about the importance of aesthetic identity and I think there's been a lot of work a lot of literary critical work around interiority and and recuperating and reimagining the interior life of the enslaved and and in particular through writers like Butler and Morrison, Gail Jones and others, a recreation of of the interior life of enslaved women. But Poppy um, argues that actually it's more than that. It allows us to flesh out and kind of return that subjectivity to a visible body, 
right, um, a visible body that, that we can imagine and a face and features and that that is, you know, that's very much something that, that fiction can do and cinema, you know, television potentially more so, though in a way it's less intimate because we're not imagining that for ourselves or being presented with, you know, the director and casting director's take on what Dana um, should look like. Um, though I have to say, I, I think she's absolutely brilliant. The actress is apparently just out of drama school and and just does an, you know, an extraordinary job um, of portraying Dana. It's interesting this because in a, a previous episode, I was uh, talking to to John Mitchell about um, Forrest Gump, and we were we were talking specifically about the historical accuracy of it and where that line is. You know, in terms of how much can you fictionalize for the sake of inciting discussion and interest in in, in certain things. And we sort of looked at things like Inglorious Bastards as well, which sort of takes that line way out there and sort of blows Hitler up in the theatre, which obviously didn't happen. It's, I feel like it's maybe a little bit different when we're tackling subjects as sensitive as slavery. Mm. There has to maybe be a little bit more, things have to be a bit more rooted in historical accuracy, I think. Um, but I kind of see why there's a certain poetic license, as you said, with Kindred. Um, and one of the themes that I really got from from Kindred was this idea of inevitability. And I think that's, and, and of connectedness, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, this idea that we're all, connected to slavery were related to it in, in one way or another and I think that's why there was a focus on the the sexual abuse that happened on the plantation particularly of Alice but for me it was all about this sense that because ultimately it's a time travel story there's this sense that that Dana had to protect what was going on then in order for the present to be as it is now and I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it that that actually is quite an uncomfortable way of looking at it and, and I just wonder what your your thoughts on that were. Well, it's the whole you can't shoot your granddad type thing, right? Mm. If you go back in time, yeah? So Hagar had to be born, right? Because otherwise, Dana wouldn't be born, right? So she had to produce generations. And I think that's as a, as, it's just wonderful of, of Butler to women, enslaved women and you know, sort of um, future descendants of women, they carry secrets. They may not have told their children that they were, you know, sort of created through an act of violence. Um, And subsequently, um, the children's children may not know anything. So, you know, sort of these enslaved women and some of their descendants, they carry secrets. And I think for me, that's what is so important about Butler's text, the the female-centric element, which Hilary has already um, talked about, but also, you know, sort of what does it mean to be an enslaved woman and then, you know, a descendant of an enslaved woman? So, yeah, I think um, that is, that's, that's the real kind of moment for me around, you know, sort of this element of having to um, protect the past to ensure a future. Which I think is given a really, really an interesting extra turn of the screw in the adaptation, right? And this is something, again, I feel like everything I've said is I'm still grappling with this. And it's in part because I was kind of expecting there to be a second season um, and really hoping it's going to get picked up by another network because I feel as though Jacobs Jenkins set up so many 
complicated and already complicated story, right, in order to, to, to kind of set up so many threads that are nowhere near resolved. Um, but the story of Winnie, right, in the, in the adaptation where, I mean, Dane, if I'm reading it correctly, Dana's wrong, right? Like for, for the most part of this series, mm. she thinks it's Carrie who is her yeah. ancestor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything she does is yeah. set up to protect Carrie. That's um, an interesting. Oh yeah, no, interesting. Liam, I think I think you should yeah. give it another I shot because it. <laughs> yeah. because it is it is different. But I think it's I think it's trying to do more with this question of, of implication, right? And this is why I keep coming back to who is implicated, right? Like who is being taken to task by this um, by this adaptation. So Dana sets events in motion because she thinks she needs to protect Carrie to stop Carrie being sold away from the plantation. And so she incites Winnie, who has been taken as a, you know, as, as a sexual plaything by Tom Whalen and by inciting her to, to run away, right? And Winnie's really ambivalent about this and again this is one of these really key moments of you know of not not thinking that that in the present we have any sense of what it meant to be an enslaved woman and it's not it's not really not quite the same thing at all but there's the shades of Harriet Jacobs in the character of Winnie right Mm -hmm. which is that there are moments where she indicates that she would prefer to stay with Tom Whalen as a devil she knows than take her chances out in the world where where dogs will be sent after her, where who knows where she'll end up. And she's even kept in a crawl space, I mean, for like for a couple of days rather than for the years that, that Harriet Jacobs spent in her grandmother's attic. But I think there's sort of a, a, a callback there to Jacobs and that question of to what extent can an enslaved woman choose her own sexual partner exploitative as that inevitably is but anyway so Dana sets in motion um these events where where Winnie um takes matters in her own hands and and attempts to escape to freedom but that's what takes Kevin out of Dana's kind of arm's reach right and sets in motion this train of events where Kevin gets left in in a antebellum Maryland and Dana comes back to present day LA um, and I don't think that's a spoiler because obviously it happens in the book, but it's framed very, very differently. And, and, and just to clarify kind of, for, yeah. for anyone listening, that the, the idea of Kindred is that if you're holding, if you're touching in physical contact with Dana when she transports, you go with her. So yeah. that, and that's how Kevin ended up in the 1800s. Yeah. So, um, and there's also, there's this, again, which is, again, I, I believe to be a change from the novel. I actually didn't get to reread it quite as in-depthly as, um, as I intended to before this po- podcast. But there's a moment in the series where Dana, Kevin has basically said, I don't want to come back with you. I don't want to go there. And that in itself is, you know, we need to think that through. Is that okay? Is Can he just do that? Because he's got the privilege of being the white guy who's not deeply connected to this past. He basically says, look, I don't want to go back with you. But when Dana starts to be pulled back, it's so traumatic and so violent and her movements are kind of so involuntary that she actually hangs on to him and it's not quite clear whether she's just overriding his refusal to come or whether she really can't let go. And she certainly apologises to him and and kind of says, look, I just, you know, kind of I, I couldn't let go. But there's a way in which Dana has has compelled Kevin to do something against his will to be kind of drawn back into this time 
I do. I so. also think, you know, so we're back to adaptation again, aren't we? Because um, uh, Jacobs Jenkins assumed that he would have, you know, sort of several seasons to play out, you know, sort of these characters' stories, right? So, um, and, uh, um, and so who knows, you know, sort of how Winnie's life will fold out or, you know, sort of uh, um, how Kevin's um, story will, will um, develop. So, you know, sort of, um, I think the, the beauty of adaptation, particularly for TV series, is that you can get a lot more you know, sort of, you can tell a lot more story, whereas, um, you know, sort of the book's the book, right? Um, and all, I don't know how many pages, I reread it uh, over the weekend, and, you know, sort of, uh, um, it has to, you know, sort of serve a particular function in, you know, 300 pages, and that's it. The, the, the beauty of an adaptation done really well is that stories can unfold gradually, and we may know by, you know, sort of season three, whether Dana intended to, you know, sort of take Kevin back or not. I have a theory that the big twist that Jacob Jenkins is going to introduce is that Kevin's actually the father of Dana. Because when we see him at the end, he's with Alice, right? Uh Like he's on a, he's on a, he's on a horse kind of, you know, acting as an enslaver. And it's not clear whether that's a role that he's playing to protect Alice or whether it's a role that he's lent into. Mm. Um, You know, I mean, enough has been changed, I think, from the book that we can't really trust that, um, that Kevin is going to kind of end up being the guy that he is uh, in the novel. So anyway, I, I have allowed myself to speculate. I wonder if we'll get this kind of radical twist where Kevin, somehow you know that that given that Dana was wrong about Carrie is she also going to be wrong about Alice though so it's all it's in the in the family bible that Alice and Rufus have a child but you know who knows that's my that's my theory my spoiler theory that Kevin's going to be even more implicated than than we think so and that there's a reason that he needed to be pulled back in that same kind of you can't shoot your grandfather but you know, everyone needs to be in their right places in the past for the present to play out. So why does Kevin need to be there? Because he's going to play a key role. You're not feeling that, that, Becky? (laughs) No, because I I do think that, you know, sort of um, thinking about um, the trauma of of white people, actually, and it's it's a subject that's not really discussed a lot in quite reasonably, really. But um, thinking about the socialisation of white children, white enslaver children into slavery and authority and mastery if you're a boy in particular and the way in which Rufus's story um uh you see Rufus go from you know sort of quite a polite you know sort of sometimes a bit tetchy especially with his mother um but you with Dana he's you know sort of really really lovely And then we see him develop. And this is what slavery does, right? To impose his ideas around mastery and authority. And they model behavior, right? You know, so he sees his father acting a particular way with um, um, the enslaved who labored on the plantation, but also with um, other white um, uh, men. Um, And he takes that kind of, he learns. He learns that that's the way to be a white man in the South if you have um, a certain level of money. And so um, so I think um, white trauma, particularly in terms of children being socialised into 
um, uh, white children being socialized into um, slavery and slave mastery is is another element that I think Butler just did wonderfully well with actually um yeah no I don't disagree but what what if for Jacobs Jenkins it's actually it's easy for Kevin to slip into that role right that he's making a point that a sleeping with that that are not yet necessarily but you know we don't know. I th- I thought that was really interestingly. Well, never know. The end of the, I know but, <laughs> but I think I guess I guess what I'm asking is, given that the Kevin of this adaptation is very different to the Kevin of of the book, um, and you know, I think we can, you know, I think that's just sort of a very sort of a clear and fair statement to make. I wonder if Jacobs Jenkins' point is that this white dude of 2016 is actually not that far off is fewer degrees of separation or you know fewer generations away from the enslaver than he would like to think and I think some of the clues to that are things like you know he's he's embraced African-American popular culture Um, you know he kind of falls on her um, her records her vinyl collection he you know sort of enjoys showing off his knowledge of african-american music and there's a moment where penny where the sister is unsurprised to see kevin with dana as a black woman and i thought oh are we going to get some comment that kevin actually you know has regularly um gone out with Uh with black women Uh and i i don't know i just wonder if actually we're being presented with a situation where there's not as much distance between um, Kevin and, and Awayland as, you know, as we think. In the book where he right. can't really tell Alice and Dana apart by the end, mm. right? Um, that actually maybe as the story unfolds in season two and three, that, you know, sort of Kevin can't really tell Alice and Dana apart. And we, I mean, like, it would be absolutely, you know, sort of enthralling to, you know, think about that in terms of white implication. And uh, um, and moving away from that kind of white saviour narrative, which actually Butler never ever uh, inserts into um, her text, um, the traumatization of Rufus is done so you know sort of brilliantly. But yeah, I mean, sort of if Kevin was to you know sort of become like Rufus and not really be able to tell the difference between Alice and and Dana, that would be um, that would be really interesting. I think. So, so as a, as a white man, I'm I'm very conscious here of not wanting to be victimising um, 19th century white men, but uh, there th- there is a commentary here, isn't there, about how everyone is is can be corrupted by their environment. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in, in the book, it was it was definitely Rufus. You know, he was there was references there to how he was almost treated um, as poorly as the slaves at time by by Tom Whalen, and and he grows up to be a slaveholder because that's his place in society. That's that's what yeah. he's told he should do. So it's very interesting uh, how that sort of played out in the TV series there with Kevin. I think Kevin obviously got a lot more time in the series than he than he did in the book, I think, for his character to develop. But um, I think we need to look at rounding off this discussion for now, even though we could go on for hours. And if there's anyone that's been listening to this because they're very interested in conversations around slavery, but they, they don't know what the heck goes on in Kindred, um, I'd like just both of you to to offer some words of wisdom as to, to why why anyone should read or watch Kindred? Well, it was the first ever, I think, um, science fiction book um, by a, a black woman. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Hilary. Um, and, uh, um, but it, 
I think um, for the the poignancy and the the kind of the beauty of of how Butler focuses on on the on the past but brings it to the present as well. So she's really saying, right, so you can't ignore your past. You can't erase, you know, sort of the stain of slavery on the American nation. And this is what Frederick Douglass was saying, you know, sort of over a hundred years before, you know, sort of America is a shameful nation for enacting um, uh, um, um, slavery upon uh, black black people. So, you know, sort of, uh, um, I think it is just one of the the most um, complex and interesting um, fictional texts around um, black women's experiences, um, both in the present in twenty sort of um, in nineteen when, when was it nineteen seventy published in seventy nine yeah um, sorry um, and I was thinking about the adaptation twenty sixteen um, and you know sort of but reflecting back. Uh, um, to slavery in Maryland, early Maryland, um, so uh, yeah, early nineteenth century. Yeah. Oh, look, I think to I mean to echo what Becky said there that this is Kidred is just an extraordinary novel. It is was innovative for its time and still is. Um, it's an absolutely foundational work of Afrofuturism, but I think. Uh, yeah, even beyond that, um, again, it's just a kind of a compelling rendering of how we are still living with the unfinished business of the 19th century. Right? And that's, and it's such a, it's a beautiful portrait of 1976, as well as a portrait of, you know, 1815, 1816, um, in the same way that, that Jacobs Jenkins, um, I think, is doing something interesting with, with 2016. And, and I think we didn't quite get to see him take flight with that in the first season that we've got but you can see where he was starting to go with the the discussions about you know whether or not you call the police right to a scene of, of domestic disturbance and I think he's texturing that because that you know the neighbor couple are you know they are unbearable right they're unspeakable <laughs> terrible people and yet it does sound as though a young black woman is being violently assaulted in her home by a kind of schlubby white guy. So in that way, you know, they're not entirely wrong in their, hey, we heard screaming, what's going on here? Um, and so there's an element of satire, I think, in, in that representation. But also I think Jacobs Jacobs doesn't give us easy answers. He doesn't give us kind of easy caricatures of people. So I think both, both reading and viewing Kindred turns a lens on us. Um, and I see that as a key feature of, of the way Jacob Jenkins works with, with adaptation. Um, and so it's like they're, they're worth reading for their version of Annabella Maryland um, and enslavement, um, but also their rendering of, you know, of race relations in the 70s, the complexities of an interracial relationship in the 70s, but also what that looks like, you know, what that looks like now. This episode of America, a history podcast, was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A huge thanks to our guests this week, Dr. Rebecca Fraser and Dr. Hilary Emmett, for joining me on this show. And if you like the discussion and you want to learn more, you can check out some of the resources in the show notes. 
And of course, a lot of work goes into this podcast. So if you can leave us a review and a rating wherever you're listening, that would be amazing. Next time, we take a look at one of the most successful television shows of all time. In honour of the late Matthew Perry, we ask, could friends be any bigger? Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.